Uh, good morning. Uh, so I want to begin by sharing a couple of stories of times that I was left uh, behind. I think all of us might have had times where somebody left you or you got really anxious, maybe when you were a kid in the grocery store or something like that, and you couldn't find your mom or your dad, and you're kind of freaking out. I remember one time, I had to have been a little kid because it scared me. I was taking forever to get ready for church. I don't know what I was doing. All I do know is my dad said, if you don't hurry up, we're going to leave you. And uh, me thinking, you're not actually going to leave me because I'm a little kid. I probably, probably because he told me to hurry up, I probably went slower. I don't know. Um, but then, So as I'm walking down the stairs, I see him and my brothers in his car backing out to leave. And he left. And I'm thinking... What? And again, I'm scared. I had to have been little because I was kind of scared. Then I was like, well, when mom finds out that he left me, I'm going to get in more trouble. Uh, the good news is he just left to drive around the neighborhood and he came back. But I learned my lesson not to take forever because he might actually leave me. Uh, contrast that with a couple of years later at church again, uh, my parents, uh, we were, there was some event or something that had, was going on. And I guess my parents had driven separately, driven separately uh, because by the time the event was riding down, you know, I was running around having fun with my friends. I realized that both of my parents were gone. They both had left without me. Now, I, you could say they did it by accidents. Maybe this was their, their point, their, their ploy. I don't know. But I had to get one of my friend's parents who was still there to bring me home because they left me. Now, uh, I share that because this morning we are looking at one of the uh, more well-known prophecies or uh, ultimate fulfillments made in the Messiah when he came. Um, however, it's also one of the most maybe debated and confusing of all of them. And so if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to Isaiah chapter 7. Uh, we are in a kind of Advent Christmas series these, these few weeks in December, where we are looking at various Old Testament prophecies which saw their ultimate fulfillment in the Messiah when he came. Now, last week we looked at Genesis chapter 3, and we saw that God's plan was always to send the Messiah to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. Uh, today, like I said, we're looking at one of the most well-known uh, prophecies that saw their ultimate fulfillment in Jesus. Um, even if you're not quite sure uh, the reference of this verse or where it happens, you have undoubtedly heard it before, most likely. Um, we sing songs about it, and today we're going to actually see the context in which it was written. Now, this might sound a little interesting, but today is going to actually feel more like a Bible study than a sermon, um, because again, this text is one of the most confusing and debated. And what I typically try to do on a Sunday morning is try to make it as clear as under, and as understandable as possible. However, um, there are times when Scripture is confusing, when we have to wrestle with it, when we have to read it and study it and see what God might be revealing through us. And so, just to let you know, you may be a little confused this morning. And that's okay. My hope is that you'll still understand kind of the overarching arc of what's happening. But there's some confusing things that is going on in Isaiah chapter 7. And then also in Matthew chapter 1, where the gospel of Matthew, the author of Matthew, reads this text and sees that its ultimate fulfillment was in the Messiah that came. And so if you're ready to study with a little, me, with a little bit with me this morning, we'll be in Isaiah chapter 1, starting in verse 1. The context of this, the prophet Isaiah lived a little over 700 years before Jesus would come. At this point in Israel's history, uh, they are in the promised land. However, they have broken off into two kingdoms. You had the northern kingdom, uh, also known as Ephraim in this text, and you have the southern kingdom of Israel, um, also known as Judah. 
And what's happening here is that the northern kingdom, uh, Ephraim and Aram, or also Syria, depending on your translation, um, are kind of rebelling against Assyria. So Assyria is the most mightiest nation in the world uh, at this point in human history, the strongest one that had ever existed up until this point. And uh, Ephraim and uh, Syria are kind of rebelling and saying, no, we're not going to keep paying tributes. We're trying to go our own way. And they wanted Judah, the southern kingdom, to also join them in this rebellion. However, uh, Judah wouldn't do that. The king Ahaz, who is a wicked king, is the king of Israel at this time, of Judah, and he doesn't want to do that. And so Ephraim and Syria decide that they're going to come and invade Jerusalem, which is the capital of Judah, to try to put in a puppet king over Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel, so that the southern kingdom will join them in their rebellion. So I haven't confused you yet. Let's look at the text, chapter 7, verse 1. It says, this took place during the reign of Ahaz, son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah. So again, this is the reign of Ahaz, who is the southern king of Judah, the southern king of Israel at this time. Um, it says, yeah, that took place then. And then it says, Aram, king Rezin, and Israel's king Pekah, son of Ramalia, went to fight against Jerusalem, but they were not able to conquer it. Again, Ephraim and Syria are trying to fight against Jerusalem, but they weren't able to conquer it yet. Verse 2, when it became known to the house of David that Aram had occupied Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the hearts of his people trembled like trees of a forest, shaking in the wind. So again, Aram, or a- a.k.a. Syria, and Ephraim are coming to fight against Israel. Ahaz, who's the line of David, the king of Judah at this time, is afraid. His court is afraid, and their kingdom is afraid about what is going to happen. Now, here's what we know, the history of Israel. You have the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Both of them are unfaithful. The northern kingdom ends up getting uh, captured quicker than the southern kingdom, because the southern kingdom is a, is a little bit better, but still they fall to the same fate. And so what's happening here is that Ahaz is afraid. Now, Ahaz is a wicked king. You actually can read more about King Ahaz in 2 Kings chapter 16, but we also know about Ahaz that he actually sacrificed one of his own sons, which obviously is a terrible thing. Um, And he has a problem here, right? Aram, Aram, aka Syria, and Ephraim are coming to fight against him because they rebelled, but he doesn't want to join the alliance. So again, they're coming to attack Judah to try to replace him with a puppet king that will follow them into battle against Assyria so he is afraid. Verse 3, then says this, The Lord said to Isaiah, which is the prophet Isaiah, Go out with your son Sher Jehoshahub to meet, Ahaz, uh, to meet Ahaz at the end of the conduit of the upper pool by the road of the launderer's field. So again, prophet Ahaz is told, to, or the prophet Isaiah is told to go meet Ahaz with his son, um, and what's interesting here is that wordplay is pretty much always or a- actually always at play in the Old Testament with the names of the people that show up. And so Shair uh, Jashahub uh, actually literally means a remnant shall return. A remnant shall return us, which is supposed to alert us as readers that something is going to happen here that has to do with this name. Uh, It's suggesting the fate of Israel here and what is going to happen. And here's what's ultimately going to happen. That exile is eventually coming. However, a remnant will return and be preserved and that God will still be faithful in light of Israel's unfaithfulness. And so verse four, it says this. Say to him, so Israel is to say, or sorry, Isaiah is to say to Ahaz, calm down and be quiet. Don't be afraid or cowardly because of these two smoldering sticks, talking about the two nations coming against him. 
the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram and the son of Ramalia. For Aram, along with Ephraim and the son of Ramalia, has plotted harm against you. They say, let us go up against Judah, terrorize it and conquer it for ourselves, and then we can install Tabil's son as king in it. So Isaiah is coming to Ahaz, who again has been wicked, has been unfaithful. Uh, there's no real reason for God to uh, warn Ahaz like he is, but, give, but of course God is loving and merciful. And so he goes to Ahaz to tell him not to be afraid, and that ultimately Judah would not be conquered by Ephraim and Aram. Right, which is a very good thing to happen. If you trust the Lord, if you follow me, even though you don't deserve it, you will be okay. If not, then verse, the second half of verse 9 will happen, which here's what it says if you look down the second half of verse 9. He says, if you do not stand firm in your faith, then you will not stand at all. If you do not trust me and follow me, then you will not stand at all. And so again, God being kind and gracious, then through Isaiah says this to Ahaz, verse 10. It says, Then the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, Ask for a sign from the Lord your God. It can be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. But Ahaz replied, I will not ask. I will not test the Lord. So again, Ahaz here, or Isaiah here, is giving Ahaz the opportunity uh, to ask God for a sign. It could be as supernatural, as big, or as small as he might want to demonstrate to you that God will be faithful and that Aram and Ephraim will not overtake you. And so he invites him to ask for a sign. Again, Ahaz is a wicked king. And he declines. And in fact, he references passages in Exodus and Deuteronomy, which actually explicitly talk about not putting the Lord your God to the test. Now, however, this is different because God is actually saying, no, 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 ask me and I will show you and I will reveal to you that I will be faithful. But he kind of dresses this as like a, he's being very faithful and spiritual and loving God by saying, well, no, I'm not going to ask God for a sign. I'm not going to test him in that way. Now, again, it's helpful to know Ahaz's backstory that we know at this point, again, if you read 2 Kings, that Ahaz has already taken gold out of the temple in Jerusalem and given it as a tribute of sorts to the king of Assyria to basically say, hey, go and attack. Don't let Ephraim and Aram get away with this. Go and attack them. And his point is to try to stay on the king of Assyria's good side is that if Assyria will attack Aram, attack Aram and Ephraim, well, then Judah will be okay because they're threat will be squandered and it will be no more. So it's interesting here that God gives them the ability to trust and to follow him. He says, I'm going to give you a sign that you can trust and follow me. And yet Ahaz has already decided what he is going to do. And so I think as a side note, one of the things that we see from the story that we can ask of ourselves is this, how often do you and I miss God's blessings because we have already made our decision? Like if you just think in your own life of things that you want to do and things you want to accomplish and things that you want to pursue, how often in your life and in my life do we miss God's blessings because we've already decided what we are going to do? And this can even happen when our desires are good, when we want good for somebody or we're pursuing something that is honoring to God or that loves people or that loves our community well. So often we can get impatient. We can want to force things. We want things to happen in our timeline and now. And so we make a decision to do something our way and 
and then we miss out what God might want to do in us and through us or what God might might want us to experience because we've already decided how we're going to do it. And then to make matters worse, I think we sometimes, I know I've done this myself, we then try to dress it up in spiritual language about I'm just trying to be faithful and I'm just trying to do what God has called me to do when in fact sometimes God wants us to wait. He wants us to rely on him. He wants us to experience him. And how often do you and I miss God's blessings in our life? Because we say, no, I'm going to figure this out. I'm going to do this on my own. That's what's happening to Ahaz here. And that's what's happening to Judah. He's made a decision, an unfaithful decision. And so not only is he not going to experience God's blessing, he's actually going to experience something a lot worse. Which leads us to verse 13. And we're getting to the passage or the verse that is pretty well known when it comes to the Messiah. Here's what it says in verse 13. Isaiah said, listen, house of David. So again, he's talking to Ahaz, who is the lineage of David. He's the king of Israel. Is it not enough for you to try the patience of men? Will you also try to try the patience of my God? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. See, the virgin will conceive and have a son and name him Emmanuel. By the time he learns to reject what is bad and choose what is good, he will be eating curds and honey. This is a Hebrew idiom by, the, by essentially saying by the time that he is two or three years old. Verse 16, for before the boy knows how to reject what is bad and choose what is good. By the time, again, he's about two to three years old. The land of the two kings you dread will be abandoned. In other words, by the time that this child, that, get, that, that some woman in their presence is going to give birth to a child, and within two to three years, this threat of attack from Aram and Ephraim will be no more, which sounds good, right? They're going to be safe. However, he is a wicked and an unfaithful king, and so he also has to hear verse 17 when Isaiah says this. The Lord will bring on you your people and your father's house such a time as has never been since Ephraim separated from Judah. He will bring the king of Assyria. So some context about what's going on, and then we'll kind of see what this verse is trying to say when it comes to the Messiah. I think, again, as a side note, it's really interesting when we take some time to understand what's happening in the Old Testament. I mean, it enlightens a lot of what's happening in the New Testament, and I think it's going to make you view this verse way different than you might have before ahead of time. So essentially what's happening here, again, is that Isaiah is saying that someone in their presence will give birth to a child. Here's where the debate comes in of who is the woman, who is the child, who is the father, what's going to be happening here, that that this is a prophecy that is not just talking about a Messiah 700 years from now. Everybody in that room who heard what Isaiah was saying would not have been thinking about a future Messiah. They would have been thinking about literally something happening within the next two to three years. And that is actually what we see that happens if you study Israel's history. Within two to three years, uh, Syria and Ephraim are overtaken by Assyria. And so the threat to Judah goes away, at least for a while, because about 60 years after that, the problem of the mighty Assyrian nation also eventually overtakes uh, Judah and sends the Israelites in Jerusalem into exile, which is doubly unfortunate because never again would Judah have its own king. Again, in the centuries to come, some of the Israelites would be allowed to move back to Jerusalem and to the Israel area. In fact, even in the time of Jesus, right, you have, you have many Israelites and Jews living in that area. However, they are under the rule of Roman authority. Never again would they have another king until this Messiah would come. Now, here's what's happening here for us. Again, Isaiah was talking about a baby born in that day. 
However, we also know if you continue to read Isaiah, uh, that uh, later in Isaiah, we do know that this baby in this context that he's talking about in Isaiah 7 can't be the ultimate fulfillment of Israel uh, because we see often throughout the book of Isaiah that somebody from the line of David will rule over Jerusalem, which of course this baby wouldn't, and all of the nations will look to him, to this baby for deliverance. Which means, although in this specific context, especially in Isaiah 7, he's not necessarily talking about a future Messiah, it is pointing to a Messiah, especially if you continue to read Isaiah, that will one day restore Israel. Now, before we pick this up in Matthew chapter 1, again, it's important to understand as we read texts like this and remember that God's mercy is always a gift. What we see happening in this text is that God's mercy is always a gift. How do we know that? Ahaz is a wicked king, sacrificed his own child, has made a deal with Assyria, and then tried to dress it up in faithful language as to why he's not going to test the Lord. And God says, A, not only am I going to preserve Jerusalem from Ephraim and Aram, but I'm also, even though Assyria will one day overtake you and Israel will never again have its own king, that I will still be faithful to you and make a promise to you that although you don't deserve it and nobody deserves it, I will send a Messiah, a rescuer to do for you what you cannot do for yourself. One of the amazing things when you read throughout the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament is that God's mercy is always on display, which means it should not surprise us that when God comes in the form of Jesus, his love and his mercy is on display like we've never seen before. This isn't God who's angry and vengeful in the Old Testament and loving and gracious in the New Testament. We have a consistent God who is always desiring to give us grace and mercy and love. And so whatever you have walked in here with, whatever this month or this week or yesterday or this year has looked like, you need to remember that God's mercy towards you is not dependent on you. It's dependent on him and his character. God's mercy is always a gift. Now, this leads us to Matthew chapter 1. How are we doing? Are we okay? We still kind of understand what's happening here? Okay, there we go. Matthew chapter 1. This section understands me. Here we go. Now, Matthew chapter 1, Matthew references this prophecy when he's talking about the fulfillment of the Messiah who is to come. Now, we won't get into it in this morning, even though it's really, really awesome. Uh, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1 through 17 is the genealogy of Jesus through the line of Joseph. So although we know that Joseph wasn't actually, I guess, biologically Jesus's father, uh, in ancient times, your father was your legal representative. And so uh, Matthew sets this up by showing us the legal representation or the line from which Jesus would come. And then he says this in verse 18, after giving us the lineage, says this, the birth of Jesus Christ came about this way. After his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, it was discovered before they came together that she was pregnant from the Holy Spirit. So her husband Joseph, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her publicly, decided to divorce her secretly. Now, real quick, to understand what engagement or in some translations say betrothal in ancient times is a lot different than how we view it today, right? Today, you, you date somebody and then you get engaged and then you get married. And if you're engaged, you're not technically married. And so you can break it off if you want. And of course, it's not fun, but there's no legal ramifications of that. That's not how the ancient world worked. How it worked for them is typically you would have a young, young teenager, a boy and a girl, or even before they were teenagers, uh, you would have their parents who would decide that 
these children are going to be married one day. And there is actually a legal process that to make you engage, even if you're not officially married, it's kind of like a prenuptial agreement, if you will, that these parties will be married and this is what's going to happen and here's how it's going to work. Um, this was also important for those that could afford it. You would have what's called a bride price because again, back in this day, everybody worked. Everybody worked. And so what would typically happen is that when a man and a woman would get married, the, the woman would leave her family and join the husband's family. And so the father and mother of the bride would have to be compensated for the, for the, the lack of labor that they're going to lose when their child leaves. And so there's a contractual agreement that this is going to happen. And so even though you're not officially married yet, when it talks about divorcing, it's because they would still have to walk through this process. Because here's the problem, right? They're not married yet. And uh, even though they are engaged, again, it was shameful or was looked down upon to have sexual relations until you were officially married. So Mary being pregnant is a problem, especially from Joseph's perspective, because he knows he hasn't slept with Mary. And so he's not sure what to do with this. And so we see that in his righteousness or in his compassion, he desires to divorce her as quietly as he can. Again, they're in a very small town. People know what's going on. He's trying to not make a big deal of it, but it seems that he has broken the terms of their engagement. And so he wants to divorce her quietly. But then verse 20 happens. It says this. But after he had considered these things, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, because what has been conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to name him Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins." So an angel visits Joseph. It's very key here that he says, son of David. He's reminding him of his lineage, that he is from the, the line of the kings of David. And it's a reminder again for us as readers that this messianic hope, the remnant will return, and that this faithful remnant is going to return and come by the way of Jesus. And remember, it has to happen through the line of David. So he is to save their people from their sins, which is why he is to name this child Jesus. Jesus literally means to deliver or to rescue. So this child, this Messiah, will come and save and rescue and deliver their people from their sins. Which leads to verse 22, where he references Isaiah 7. He says, now all, it says, now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, through the prophet Isaiah. See, the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they will name him Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Now, one of the things that's interesting, it's helpful for us to know, is that the best way you could kind of think of it is kind of like biblical hyperlinks. And so when especially the original audiences were reading these, these gospels or these letters, when they reference a verse or two, they're not, just a, they're not just asking us to remember those specific verses. The authors are asking us to bring into mind everything that was going on. And so we're supposed to be thinking of the fighting and the uncertainty of the line of Judah when we talk about these verses. He's trying to bring in mind everything we just read. Now, so that means, remember, that Isaiah's prophecy came about when the threat of attack against Judah was really, really high, and it seemed like Israel would be destroyed, and that God's promise to Abraham that we see all the way back in Genesis 12, that all the nations would be blessed through him, uh, would no longer happen. That this promise that God loves the world and that through, uh, through Israel, God will send a savior and a king to give redemption to all people will end with Judah being attacked. 
And yet that's not what happens. Now, again, as a side note, I know this is kind of technical. You might then be asking, as many do when they discover what's happening here, how are we supposed to feel with the fact that Matthew is using a prophecy that wasn't necessarily about the Messiah to then say it's about the Messiah, right? That might make us feel a little uncomfortable. Um, One of the things that's important for us to remember is that Isaiah and Matthew and even us today, uh, when we read scripture, we often know and understand that it does not just speak of past events uh, in their own day, but at the same time, when God speaks, it can take on a new life and a new meaning and new situations, right? And so on Sundays or maybe in your own times with the Lord, we read the scriptures and we understand that certain things happen in a certain context, and yet it can still speak to us and give us wisdom for the situations that we are facing. And so this is what Matthew does when he reads Isaiah 7. When Matthew tries to explain what is happening with Jesus the Messiah, he turns to the Hebrew scriptures, which is what they would always do to understand it. And so he naturally comes across Isaiah 7 and sees that Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of something that also had another application in the past. And so what we see oftentimes throughout the Old Testament, that sometimes there are prophecies that are explicitly talking about the Messiah, which we'll see one next week, um, and doesn't have really any meaning in the present. But most often, the prophecies that the biblical authors see as pointing to to the Messiah also had practical relevance to the hearers that heard them. And that's what is happening here, that Matthew is seeing this as although it uh, it was technically applied to that situation, he was seeing that it had ultimate or greater fulfillment in something that would happen later. And we also know that this is not a stretch because what does Jesus do? Jesus is not only the savior of the world, but he also also ends the wrath that was begun by Assyria. Remember that Israel never had another king after uh, Ahaz was, or after Israel was taken over by Assyria. Uh, But what we see happening here is that Jesus is this king, the one and final king who came to do for us what we could not do for ourselves, and that all the nations would be blessed through him. What seemed like darkness, what seemed like it was over for Israel and for the whole world was not yet done, right? As we see Shair Jashahu, that a remnant shall return, that God will not turn his back on us. And we see that ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. And what this reminds us is something I think very profound. It's a good thing to remember that God is faithful to his promises, even when he has no reason to be. And so as we understand Isaiah more in its context and what Matthew is trying to pull out when he references Isaiah 7 is that God's faithfulness or God is faithful to his promises even when he has no reason to be, that his mercy is not dependent on us. His faithfulness is not dependent on us. When he says something, he will do it. Uh, When he promises something, he will make a way for it to happen, which again, I think is an encouragement for us, not just today, but as 2020 has been a quite difficult year for all of us, that God is faithful to you, even when he doesn't have to be, that he loves you, even when you've blown it, that he cares for you, even if this year has been difficult and you might have made some decisions that you might not have otherwise made if this year had played out differently than it has played out, that even in all of those things, that God has not turned his back on you. He has not abandoned you. He does not care for you any less. He is faithful to his promises. A remnant shall return to love and redeem us, 
even when he doesn't have to be, even when he has no reason to be, which is good news for us. And what this also means, which I think is also encouraging, is that God's faithfulness to you, therefore, is not dependent on your faithfulness to him. Right? If God's mercy is not dependent on your faithfulness, if his faithfulness is not dependent on your faithfulness, then it's not about what you do that matters, but rather what Christ is doing for you. And this is really important for us to understand. At the end of the day, Scripture, more than anything else, is about God's redemption and his invitation for us to take a part in his plan in redemption. It is not about you. It is about him. And so one of the challenges that we can have sometimes is, is particularly, well, when we read the Old Testament, one of the uh, coping mechanisms mechanisms that we can have is we can read these biblical characters and try to put ourselves in place of it. Like we're Abraham or we're David or, or we're Joseph or we're all of these people. And yes, there are certain times uh, where we can be in difficult situations like these biblical leaders, but we are not them. And this story is not about us. The story is about God's redemption and his love for you. And so we need to let scripture uh, speak to us, convict us, instead of trying to place ourselves as the central hero of the story, because you're not the hero. And listen, that is actually really good news, because you will not always get it right, and you will often fall short. But God's faithfulness to you is not dependent on you. It's dependent on him. And that is the good news of what uh, Matthew was trying to pull out as he references Isaiah. It's not about Ahaz. It's not about Israel. It's not about you. It's about the Messiah who is doing for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And so he continues the last two verses we'll read by saying this in verse 24. Knowing all of that, he says this. When Joseph woke up, he did as the Lord's angel commanded him. He married her but did not have sexual relations with her until she gave birth to a son and he named him Jesus. Now, one of the things that's really cool as we begin to kind of nerd out a little bit like we do this morning is that we see scripture, man, it is it is beautifully written. I mean, it is masterfully written. And so one of the things that happens if you do a little digging is that you actually get to see some really, really beautiful things come to life. Now, remember, Jesus's name specifies who he is. He is our rescuer and he is our deliverer. And if you combine that again with the title Emmanuel, uh, he's given, although his name is Jesus, he's referred to a lot of various things. He's given a lot of various titles in the Old Testament and other names in the New Testament. And so he is our deliverer who is with us. When you combine Jesus and Emmanuel, which is what Matthew does in this passage, he's trying to remind us that our deliverer, our rescuer is with us. Now, here's where it gets really cool. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, here's what it says in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. It begins by saying this. This is the genealogy of Jesus. But again, one of the themes of Matthew is trying to demonstrate to us that God is with us. As a side note, Matthew was written primarily to a Jewish audience. And so they would have understood a lot of these things. And so if you translate Jesus with Jesus and Emmanuel, which is what Matthew is doing later on in Matthew chapter 1, it says this. Matthew begins his gospel by saying, this is the genealogy of our deliverer, the one who is with us. Now, here's why that's cool. If you flip to the very end of Matthew chapter 8, the very last thing, you should, I'll just tell you so you don't have to flip there if you don't want to. The very last thing that Matthew records is Jesus with his disciples, who is he is ascending back into heaven. And what is the very last thing that it says in Matthew chapter 28? Jesus says this, And remember, I am with you always to the very end of the age. 
I am your deliverer. I am Emmanuel. Now, one of the really great things, again, if we take this a step further about Christianity and about Jesus particularly, is that Emmanuel is not a simply a feel-good title, but a demonstrated action. Emmanuel is not like in our culture today, we like to talk about this idea that God is love, that he's loving and he's caring, and maybe if we're not sure who this God is, but it's like we, we value love and tolerance, which can be a good thing in our culture today. And so Christian or not, we love to aspire uh, the characteristic of love to whoever God is or whoever the, the creator might be. What's fascinating is that only in Christianity do you get this concept as not simply a good idea, but a real thing. God doesn't just say that he loves us and we're supposed to believe him. He demonstrates it for us, right? And this is the good news of the gospel. Again, that God is not up in heaven uh, saying, do all these good things. And if you're good enough, then I'll redeem you. Then I'll love you. Then I'll make a way for you to experience my goodness and my faithfulness. What he is saying is that in spite of you, I will love you and redeem you because of my faithfulness, right? The good news of the gospel is that Christ came. And so what we can do, especially in a time like this when life is hard and difficult and we're concerned about COVID and maybe financial situations is that we can still have hope and we can still have joy and we can still rejoice even in the midst of all of the unknown because God is with us and not just in a theoretical concept, but personally demonstrated his love for us and coming to do for us what we could not do for ourselves, that he is the rescuer and not you, that he is our deliverer and not you. And so God is with you, which means as we say often here at New City Church, that if you follow Jesus and trust Jesus and simply repent of your sins and be honest about your need for him, that you have nothing to prove and you have no one to impress because God himself is with us and has come and had rescued us. And it's not about us and what we do, but about him and what he has done for us. Again, Emmanuel is not just a feel good title, but a demonstrated action. The gospel is the good news that Christ came in the person and work of a man named Jesus to live the life that we could not live, to stand in the place of Israel and us, to give us the redemption and love of God. And so when we sing and we talk about God being with us, again, it's not just like, oh, this makes me feel good, but it actually ultimately changes our hearts and minds because we know that it is true. And so all that to say, to close, we can kind of wrap it up with this as we talk about Isaiah, talk about Matthew, and talk about this title of Emmanuel. Here's the good news, and here's what it ultimately means for us. What this means for us is that God is with us so that we can be with him. God is with us so that we can be with him. You see, Christmas is not simply good because God came. As we talked about last week and really the next couple of weeks, that Christmas is good news because of what Christ came to do. It's not simply that he came, but it is why he came. And so again, as we remember the title of Isaiah's son in Isaiah 7, Shair Joshahub, which means that a remnant shall return. What did Christ do? He came to preserve a remnant, a preserve a people from which all the world and all of the nations will be blessed. He has returned for you and the invitation for you and for me is to return to him. That God is with us that God loves us, that he is merciful, and that he is faithful when we are not, and that we do not deserve it, that God is with us ultimately so that you and I can be with him.